So if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, where we will continue this morning unpackaging the meaning of Colossians 3.16 as we continue to work our way through this wonderful epistle, this Christ-centered epistle, which we have uh, been uh, working through now for quite a while, and that's okay. Um, and we'll be in it for a little bit while longer. We'll be moving into the latter part of, of chapter 3 here soon, and that should be fun. And then uh, we'll get into chapter 4 and, uh, and get things wrapped up. And I'm still working on trying to decide what I'm going to do next, and, and uh, I'll, I'll perhaps let you know at some point. Of course, you can start perhaps circulating your, your, your petitions and, and, or your, your betting sheets on what he'll pick, but uh, uh, nonetheless, we'll, we'll get to something new here, uh, perhaps even by the end of the year. We'll see how things work out, Lord willing. So let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll get into our passage today. Lord, we love you. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for providing all the things that we need and even the things that we want. Um, you are so gracious to us. You have not withheld any good thing from us. And in particular, you have given us the very best of all things, and that is Jesus Christ. We rejoice that we are known by you. We rejoice that we can sit here today and come together in this unique opportunity to worship together as saints, holy ones who have been set apart by you, um, especially equipped to do the service that you have entrusted us, which we do delightfully and with hearts of gratitude and thankfulness. May we be reminded as we study your word, the Word today of all the things that we are to be thankful for and how it is that we can be an encouragement to each other through what we understand from your Word. We ask that you would be with us through your Spirit, and we pray that you would be well pleased with our worship this morning. We rejoice that we are known by you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. I'm sorry, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, we understand from this passage that we've been looking at, this segment of Colossians chapter 3, that that Paul is speaking to the unique characteristics and virtues of the redeemed, and that when those people gathered together with these unique characteristics and virtues, they create a very unique body. This body is the church, and in, within the church, these virtues and characteristics are carried out and put on display. And this display then creates an atmosphere and a location where people can come together and be a blessing to each other, where the attitudes and the conduct and the demeanor of the world is not to be found, but rather these virtues are to be on full display in all of their wonder and significance as they reflect the work and person of Jesus Christ. These things are all things that Christ was perfectly, and since we are in Christ and we model our lives after Him in the context of that, as we know from what we see here in these passages, the church ought to be a, a, a great reprieve, if you will, a location where we can come together as the saints of God and rejoice in who we are in Jesus Christ. Indeed, Paul would speak to us about the idea that this attitude of thankfulness ought to be pervasive within us and flow over into the lives of other people. So much so that we are people who forbear, that we forgive, that we love, that we cooperate with each other in a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness driven by the fact that we are overwhelmed by the fact that we've been saved. That's what happens. The church is quite unique, and I, I'm, I, I regret and I'm concerned about how the church has been um, taken over by so many other things. We see this today. I 
continued to read and I continued to marvel and wonder at the precipitous slide of the church, what people are forcing upon the church, what the people are asking the church to be involved in, what people have turned the church into. It's become everything and anything except what it's supposed to be. Michael Horton, in his book, Christless Christianity, makes the following notation about the church. He says this, this means that the church is not a club for those with similar cultural tastes, political views, ethnic backgrounds, and moral leanings. They do not meet because they, are, they share a hobby called spirituality or because they have the same vision for transforming culture. Believers gather to be regularly reconstituted as the body of Christ, receiving Christ as their living head. They do not gather on their own initiative, but are gathered by the Spirit through His ordained means of grace. I think that's very important, and Horton's point is well made. And of course, when we take Christ out of the equation, the church becomes nothing more than a social gathering, another meeting of the Grange, another book club, another social group of some sort, a political meeting, or fans of some other thing, rather than focusing on Jesus Christ. And when Christ is taken out of the equation, the church becomes everything that it ought not to be, and that's what we see so pervasive in the world today. This is why certain movements are taking over the church. BLM, social justice, wokeness, all of these things are filling the void left by a Christless Christianity. And so as a consequence, the church fails to do what it ought to do, and it comes, becomes something other than what God intended. What we see here in this passages, and in the passages that we're looking at, in particular verses 12 through 17, the basis of that being formed in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, where Paul teases out the idea of who we are and how unique we are, created, made nude, clothed in a new life and new spirit and given to us by God, that this then becomes a gathering of people who are incredibly unique, very special, who come together with unique abilities and attitudes and mindsets and gratitude that then becomes something that all of us then feed upon and rejoice together in. And we'll see today as we look at verse 16 how this plays out even in the context of how we worship, how we worship. I'll be coming back to Horton here momentarily, but ultimately we'll, we'll begin to look again at the balance of this verse 16 as it relates to what Paul is speaking to um, and to further amplify um, this imperative that we find in verse 16. We're now dealing with a lot of imperatives, things that we do as the redeemed of Christ. Christians always want to know, well, what do we do? What does a Christian do? Well, we do the things that are set forth before us here, not to become more saved, not to become savable, but rather because we are saved. These things flow out of us. And so in verse 16, we saw last week this, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The word let is the idea here of permitting or, or engaging in the word of Christ is that which is communicated to us in Scripture and the exhortations that we receive in Scripture. The idea of richly means abundantly. Dwell is the idea of one who is dwelling within a house, that occupy, the occupation of you, if you will. So this word abundantly occupies us. And the within you speaks to the idea of the incorporation of the wisdom that's contained within Scripture, the knowledge that you have of the things that Paul has spoken of here in this epistle and what's contained elsewhere in Scripture. We talked about the idea last week, too, that the folks to whom Paul was writing would not have had significant portions of the New Testament at that point, perhaps some other letters that had been circulated to the church in Ephesus, in Laodicea, and perhaps in other regions, but most of it would have been the Old Testament that they would have had. And so this is what was to dwell within them, and it was something then that would bring about a transformation within the congregation as it transformed each individual. Notice the specific nature of the individual, the individuality of the beginning of the passage in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The idea Paul here is, is, is embracing and teaching us is that is as this word is dwelling within you, it cannot help but overflow into others, which transforms the entire congregation. The uniqueness of the church 
And I think we need to treasure the church. As Michael Horton noted, this is not just a book club. We are the redeemed of Christ. This is the body of Christ of whom Jesus Christ is the head. You and I make up the various pieces and parts of that as we have studied before. We ought to really treasure this. We ought to really find great comfort in coming here. We ought to have it as a priority in our lives. I want to be at church. I want to be with the redeemed of Christ. I want to gather together with other saints to be encouraged, to be convicted, to be, as we'll see, taught and even admonished as we gather together in worship. And so don't minimize the church. Don't let other things eclipse it. Don't even make it equal with other things in which you are engaged because there is nothing more important in the context of your Christian life than being gathered together as the redeemed of Christ. Paul is emphasizing the importance of it. Now, what's significant, too, is that when people gathered together back in the day, as they would have here, the likely result often was persecution. The author of Hebrews would write to a group of people who are being persecuted, many of whom would be ultimately killed for their faith. Yet he would write in Hebrews 13, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as is the custom of some. The exhortation was to be a gathered church, to be visible in the context of exemplifying the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul here wants to make certain that, he's under, that there's an understanding that there is a corporate context to Christianity in that people are to be assembled together because this takes place, as we will see, together. We can't do this on our own. As R.C. Sproul said, there are no maverick molecules, which means there are no maverick Christians. Christians who simply choose to do what they want to do on their own without ever being part of anything other than themselves. We are not islands. We are continents, and we are to be together as the exhortation that we have. And so clearly for Paul, he would anticipate, as would Epaphras, that there is an assembled body of believers in the city of Colossae, and that they are gathering together, and that they are coming together, and that these virtues are being borne out individually amongst the group of people assembled, and that corporately then they reflect this wonderful transformation that has been wrought within them by Jesus Christ. This becomes even more evident as the Word is richly dwelling within us. A word which richly dwells cannot do anything but produce the resulting actions and virtues that are spoken of in verse 12. And indeed, Paul even ties the idea of the fact that our election is connected to the establishment of these virtues within our lives and us playing them out in real time in real life. God did not save you so you could just be happy at home. God saved you so you could be part of an identified body of believers set apart, uniquely His, exemplifying all that He has done for you by the way you act and live and communicate with others, and in particular, how you dwell and how you work with those within the church. This is incredibly unique, and it's a challenge because we've been taught so many other things about the church. We've been told that the church is for other things. It's, for, it's all about me and my felt needs. It's about I need this and I want that. What we find is that here for Paul, there is a disengagement of the things that I want, and we come together corporately to exemplify Christ and to edify and build each other up. And what's significant is this. Look what Paul does next. After talking to us about the impact of the word dwelling within us, he plays out the idea of how it's demonstrated. What is the reality of a word which richly dwells within me? How does that play out in real time for those with whom I then fellowship in the body of Christ? Well, Paul says with these two participles, teaching and admonishing. We teach and we admonish. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
So there's a lot here to think about and a lot to consider. So let's consider the idea of teaching and admonishing. And what is Paul talking here? What is he speaking to? Well, um, the, the idea here is to connect the meaning of these words to the imperative that is contained. And so the consequence of letting the word of Christ richly dwelling within you is accomplished in context with the idea of the teaching and admonishing that occurs within the body. There's a relationship between the word that dwells within and the resulting teaching and admonishing that comes out of that. This is the mode in which this dwelling becomes a reality. So the, ultimately, the best interpretation is, is one that focuses on this teaching and admonishing as expressing the means or the mode of, of demonstrating the reality of the fact that the Word of Christ is indeed dwelling within you. You're going to talk about what's in you, right? I, I mean, that happens. You will come and talk to me if you like to fish. You will talk to me about fishing. If you like to golf, you will likely talk to me about golfing. You like to talk about those things that are kind of important to you, things that you have spent time focusing on, that there's anything wrong with that. But the idea with the assembled body of Christ is if indeed the word of Christ is richly dwelling within us, what happens then when I come to church is that I am then around other people who are Bible-saturated. That saturation is to such a degree, richly, remember the word richly, is to such a degree that when you communicate with me, I am being edified by what you're saying to me. In the context of your exhortation of, to me, based upon the content of the word of, of Christ. That's unique, is it not? Now, it doesn't mean that we all walk around here as, as you, know, uh, you know, Johnny do-goods and just, oh, I'm uh, you know, talking about what you've done and all that, but to encourage each other, exhort each other. The Bible would say to us, if you see your brother in sin, go to him. If you see others who are in need, go to them, encourage them, exhort them, and even admonish, admonish. This passage here is very similar to verse 28 of Colossians chapter 1. So let's look at verse 28 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul here, of course, speaking to his particular ministry, Paul speaking of what it is he is doing as a minister of the gospel. In the, in the preceding verses of chapter 1 there, Paul talking about the fact that he's communicating the, the, the mystery, the glory of the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In verse 28, he then says this, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's interesting. Paul, Paul has an objective in his teaching, in his instruction, and that is to bring people to a point of, of reflecting Christ more in their life, to have them more settled and grounded in the Word of God, which brings about what? Sanctification, growth, development, understanding, discernment, based upon what? Your felt needs, your experience, your relationship with other people? No, based upon the content of God's Word. That's it. That's it. And so for Paul, this is significant because he's now taking his own individual charge and passing it over into the congregation. What Paul is speaking to here is the idea of one who fulfills an office. In verse 28 of chapter 1, Paul is saying, my job as an apostle is to do something. And someone else has given me the instructions as to what I am to do. Paul opens up the epistle with the identification of himself as an apostle. 
an apostle was charged by God to establish the churches and the people in the faith and wrote to them by the inspiration of the Spirit to communicate the content of God's wisdom to them. And so we too then are fulfilling an office. Now, it's not the identical office of an apostle. I'm not looking at a congregation of, an apo- of apostles. There are no more apostles, contrary to what a lot of whack jobs say today. And if you're buying into that, stop, because there are no more apostles. That ended. There are pastors and there are teachers. As we know from Ephesians chapter 4, God gave us these individuals to do what? To exhort us and to encourage us in the Word. As, an, as, as, as related to communicating the content of Scripture. And so we're fulfilling offices here. So Paul says to us this, the Word of Christ is richly dwelling within us, and, and the mode and the manner of expressing that is to then admonish with wisdom and teaching one another by communicating with each other. We'll talk more about how that's accomplished, but ser- But importantly, Paul here wants to make certain that we're understanding that we have a particular role and responsibility. What am I to practice with one another? What Paul is saying is that as that word richly dwells within me, it flows out into the lives of other people. And this is a reciprocal manner and pictures the back-and-forth nature of the fellowship intended within within the body based upon what? the Word. What is the predicate for our fellowship? Is it the fact that we all live in a rural part of Ohio? Is it because uh, we like to fish? Is it because we have a certain affinity for the Cleveland Browns? None of us like the Pittsburgh Steelers. That could possibly be a bind, a common bond. Well, there's, an exce- there's one family, pray for them. Uh, as we get into this fall season, I'm very concerned. I won't mention any names, Chris and Joel, but uh, <laughs> but that's not our bond. Thank goodness. <laughs> Nor is it the fact that some of us like to golf. Nor is it the fact that some of us might like farmall tractors more than we like John Deere tractors, or John Deere tractors more than farmall tractors or whatever it might be. The bond is the word which then brings us together. Brings us together. There's there's a fellowship that's intended as we fulfill this particular office. And so, for Paul here, this is important for us to keep in mind. So, he speaks of teaching. He speaks of teaching. Paul uses a word which is used at times to speak of official teaching of doctrine within the church, and the scope of those who are to undertake this ministry, of course, we know is limited based upon 1 Timothy 2.12. There are a particular group of people who have been gifted by God to engage in that process, as we know, elders, men within the church. I'll emphasize that fact because there is a classification, a designation that's very specific. But here, this word is clearly broadened to include all members of the body of Christ, Not in the context that you all stand up and begin to teach, but in the context of the idea that amongst each other, because you're in the Word of Christ, you are then communicating with each other the significance of how that has impacted you. Your reading of it, your study of it, reading a passage, noting what that passage um, means in terms of understanding the content of it, the doctrine of it, the significance of it. So that's significant. So we all have kind of a role to play. There's an office to fulfill. Now, if you're not in the Word, you can't do this very well, can you? If, If you're not studying God's Word, and again, this goes to the idea of the content of what you study. And I always have struggled with this kind of superficial devotional approach that's so popular amongst evangelicalisms today. No one wants to go deep. It's all surfacey stuff. And a lot of what people read isn't even really scriptural. It's like Christian psychology. It's just a lot of secular humanism kind of covered with a smattering of some Christian ideology. They throw a couple Christian words into it, and they think they've got some deep theological thing. It's not the case at all. 
The word is central. The word is central. So we're, we're teaching. This word admonishing is important too. It's interesting because the root of that Greek word incorporates the idea of the mind and to put something into the mind. So with the idea here when we talk about admonishing is to put in mind. So we're, we're teaching we're, we're, we're also then admonishing, we're putting it, something into another person's mind. It means to admonish, to warn, or to instruct in the sense of giving instruction in regard to belief or behavior. Now, that's significant. We understood that word from our study of Colossians 1.28 some time ago. Paul, as he admonishes the church in Colossae, and we can see that he's doing that, isn't he not? Is he not? As you get into chapter 2, the admonishment really kind of kicks in the gear. He's challenging them because they've acquiesced to the false teacher. They've kind of caved in on some key points, and Paul pushes them firmly. We've talked about that. And so the idea, too, amongst ourselves is that we are to be a check on each other, in the context of things that are communicated. So when someone says something to you in the context of I'm going to be doing X, Y, and Z, the idea amongst the believers is not to be engaged in critical judgment or assessment, but to exhort and to say, should you, should you be doing that? It, ought, ought, should you really be going there? Should you be reading that? Does that coincide with what the Word of God says? Are you, is that really what we're going to sing today? No. Now, of course, the problem with this, in some respects, is that people become hypercritical and judgmental and, and picking on people. That's not the idea. This often would take place in the context of a private conversation, having a conversation with somebody and saying to them, listen, I don't think that's the very best thing that you ought to be looking at. Do you really think you ought to be involved in that? Do you really think you should be going there? Doesn't word, the Word of God say this? Doesn't, doesn't the word of Christ tell us this about that? That's significant, isn't it? Now, now Paul is again speaking to the idea of offices in the context of us fulfilling a particular role. So we give instruction with regard to belief or behavior. One of the things about Christianity is that it seems to be whatever anyone thinks it is. It's like whatever definition I give to Christianity is what I think it is. And so, we have a whole hodgepodge of a lot of things that people are passing off as Christianity, which in fact isn't. It isn't. Social justice isn't Christianity. BLM isn't, isn't Christianity. Wokeness isn't Christianity, even though it's being foisted upon us as if it were. We, as the redeemed, even amongst ourselves, ought to be saying to each other, wait a minute, I'm not, we're not going there. We're not going to do that. This means what? You understand doctrine. This means you know what the Bible contains. This means that when you're told that I have to start taking into consideration other people's race and their ethnicity and that I'm going to affiliate and associate myself on the basis of that, that I'm going to go where? I'm going to go to Colossians and I'm going to go chapter 3 verse 11 and I'm going to say to them, no, that's not what the Bible says. Or it can be something else. Oh, uh, we're going to live together before we get married. Oh, really? Really? Are we going to do that? What does the Bible say about that? Well, that's your interpretation. No, this is what it says. This is what it says. So, you know, Christians have gotten to the point where we've become so complacent, and this is the thing we do. Oh, well, you know... I, I, I'm going to love them, and I'm not going to say anything because I love them so much. No, if you love them, you would say something. If you see a person sticking their hand in the fire, you're not going to sit back at the campfire and say, I'm going to watch that. That's going to be fun. <laughs> you're going to say, hey, no, don't put your hand in the fire. Get your hand in the fire. You might even reach over and grab their hand and pull it back. This is the idea here. We allow too many people to lapse into error too easily. And we do it under the guise of love and being kind and, and perhaps being gentle. But that is a mischaracterization of Scripture. And so, the idea here is that we give instruction in regard to belief or behavior. 
And this, is in the pre- this, this idea is that it goes on in a constant state of action. We're always in the context of teaching and admonishing, which is the total ministry of the Word among believers. Now, as we can see, Paul then says that this ministry must be undertaken in what? All wisdom. All wisdom. And this is the third time that Paul uses this exact phrase here in Colossians. We saw it in verse 9, we saw it in verse 28 of chapter 1, and now we see it here in verse 16. Paul in chapter 1, verse 28, uses this phrase, and it tells us the manner in which Paul undertook these two these same two ministries. And we know that wisdom is a significant theme for Paul in this letter, even more so than any of of his other epistles, even Ephesians, which kind of is a mirror of Colossians. And the reason for that, many believe, is because Paul was concerned about the idea of wisdom being used by the false teacher in the wrong way. And so he uses this word to tease out and to demonstrate the inadequacy of the wisdom of the false teacher versus the wisdom of the content of God's Word, which is objectively true, not subjectively manipulated by a false teacher. That's important. And when Paul uses the word all wisdom, the word all is significant because he has in view every form or expression of God's wisdom. Well, where do I find God's wisdom? In something I hear in the middle of the night after I ate a pepperoni pizza? No. I find it where? In God's Word. In God's Word. And this is why it's important for you to be at church, because what happens at church? You're taught what? God's Word. So it can be ingrained in you and, and pushed into you through the preaching which the Holy Spirit then blesses and edifies and grows you in. That's significant. So we see then that this this is connected to not just an arbitrary idea. This is, you know, this is why I've always struggled with, with small groups and Bible studies because inevitably what happens is that people get together and for some reason in that context... The Bible is abandoned, and it's whatever you happen to be thinking about becomes the truth for that moment. If you're going to get together, which is fine, make certain that if you're studying God's Word, that at the conclusion of it, someone says, thus saith the Lord. Don't leave it open-ended. And this idea, what does it mean to you? No, it has a meaning. It doesn't matter what it means to you in your subjective context. It has a meaning. And so what does it mean? You get together with a group of friends and you study a passage. You may look at, I don't know, John 3.16. And you get together and you read it and you go around the circle and you say to yourselves, well, what does that mean? And no one ever draws a conclusion about what it means. Everyone walks out of the room with thinking what what I think it meant is what it means. When it probably doesn't. Nine times out of ten. That open-endedness leads to a lot of error, and as my dad used to say, small groups and Bible studies are the devil's playground, and that was why. It's because no one said at the end of it, thus saith the Lord. There is a conclusion to be drawn. The Bible is not subject to your private interpretation. The words have meanings. It has a structure. It has a grammar. It has content that is to be understood in a specific way all the time, the same way, regardless of who's reading it. This is a real problem today. The Word of God is being manipulated by a large number of people to be forced into certain context in order to fit a certain paradigm or issue when the Word has a specific meaning. And so when Paul talks to us about the idea when the Word of Christ is richly dwelling within us, I'm taking the time to study it to understand it, to look at the words, to even do my own word studies so I can be impacted by the significance of its meaning. And as it's impacting me, it impacts others. And then I can engage other people through the idea of of teaching and admonishing 
with all wisdom. The wisdom is based in God's word. It's not your subjective feeling about something. Are you hearing me about this? You got to hear this because this is pervasive within the church and amongst people who say they're Christians. They look at a passage. I, yesterday, I was listening to an interview of uh, this uh, Christian uh, singer, and I use the word Christian insanely loosely when I say this. Lauren Daigle is being interviewed. The guy specifically asked her, is homosexuality a sin? The answer is yes. I mean, you don't even have to pause for a second to answer that question. there's There's not a reason why a Christian should take a moment to even think about it. Other than to say automatically because you've been, what, in God's word, which is richly dwelling within you. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But no, she said, well, I think it depends on who you are and where you are and what what that privately means to you. As you read God's word, she said, you have to decide what those words mean to you. Oh, well, isn't that nice? Welcome to non-Christianity 101. Welcome to believe whatever you want to believe. Welcome to the book of Judges. And they did that which was right in their own eyes because there was no king in the land. Oh, whatever it happens to mean to you. Well, then why even read it? Why even pick it up? This is the problem with the church today, abandoning the anchor of God's word. So, well, that makes you want to think about whether or not you're going to listen to her songs, right? Now, I'm serious about this. Because it's interesting that Paul then says to us that the means by which truth of Scripture can be communicated is what? In singing, in hymns, in psalms. This is why singing in churches and worship matters a lot. A lot. This is the reason that we don't even sing songs written by particular people even though the words may seem to be okay. We don't sing Hillsong songs here at Community Bible Church and there's a reason for that. We don't push Lauren Daigle on people or even recommend her as a viable means of listening to Christian music because she isn't. I'm sorry. A Christian grounded in God's word, when asked that question, is going to answer it. That's not a hard question. It's not a hard question. Is it controversial? To be sure. If she says the biblical answer, what happens to her record sales? What happens to her record contract? It's gone. And by the way, um, Who does she have a contract with? A secular recording company who could care less what the Word of God says. So, friends, what we take from this passage is the significance of the impact on God's Word in the way that we think and interact with each other. I'm allowed to say then to Lauren Daigle and those who are advocates for her, stop it. I'm going to admonish you. Hear me. That's not what God's word says. If that comes into the church, if you're talking to somebody and someone says, boy, I was just so blessed by Lauren Daigle's song the other day. What? You can say, or you can say, well, I was just, I was reading, um, uh, uh, I was reading uh, something by T.D. Jakes. What? What? What are you doing? What, what stopped that? I was reading, I was reading uh, uh, something by Patricia Shire. The, oh, what? What are you doing? Stop that. Uh, I, I, was, I was listening to Joel Osteen. Oh, what? You stopped listening to him. Why? Well, friend, in the word of God, what's communicated is contrary to what Joel Osteen says. Patricia Shire's position on prayer is completely antithetical to Scripture. 
Her engagement with Satan and her battles in the closet and in the dark room with him are completely contrary to what God's word says. I was, I was reading Jesus calling, what? That, that's, that's heresy. That's blasphemy. God does not communicate outside the, con, the, the constraints and the, and the content of his word as revealed. She was sitting under a tree and said someone was speaking to her and she wrote it down. That's not Jesus. That's probably a demon or just an undigested piece of meat. Like Ebenezer Scrooge thought when he saw Marley's ghost. You're just a bit of cheese. But friends, do you see what's happened? We laugh about those things, and they are laughable, but they're also lamentable. Because this is what's being passed off today as Christianity, as solid content, as things that you and I can rely upon. We cannot. And our charge, as it was the charge to the Colossae believers, is to say to people, stop it. Stop it. You don't buy Lauren Daigle's music. You don't buy Jesus Calling. You don't listen to Joel Osteen. And when you hear other people doing it, as you saw a person stick their hand in the fire, you say to them, stop it. Stop it. And you communicate to them what? You tell them about Jesus Christ. You say, no, this is what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. This is who he is, and this is what he did, and I was lost in my sin. I was condemned and damned and doomed, and God in his sovereign mercy saved me through his finished work. And because of that, I hate sin because he hates sin. And when I fail, I can look to him, but friend, you need Jesus Christ. It's not your best life now. It's not your good works. It's not getting along to go along. You must know Christ. The church has lost it. We are no longer anything. We're not salt. We're not light. We're nothing. We're whatever happens to come along. We're chameleons. Something passes by us and looks a certain way. All of a sudden, the church morphs into it. Watch Christian music. If there is a particular style of music and a particular artist that dresses a certain way in a secular context that has a number one song or a top ten selling record, I will guarantee you that within six months there will be an identical Christian artist doing and sounding exactly the same. That's what they do. They morph themselves into whatever happens to be popular because we think we have to be cool to be liked. If they hated me... They're going to hate you. And so Paul here is saying to us something very significant, something that the church has completely lost sight of. The word of Christ richly dwelling within us, with wisdom we then teach and admonish, that's reaching back into the very word that we've been studying. And we're doing this in the context of this particular mode of expression. It's very unique, quite frankly. We find the parallel passages in Ephesians 5.19, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, then, this is important. So we meet this clause here with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. To what is this connected? Does this rightly modify what precedes the teaching and admonishing, or does it modify what follows the singing? What is Paul talking about? Well, ultimately, what we consider is the fact that Paul here is saying that what we are expressing ought to be containing and be connected to that which is richly dwelling within us. It ought to be grounded within the Word of God. This is important. Isn't that significant? Was Paul concerned about worship? Was Paul concerned about what was being Sung in the church? Apparently, he was. Now, it's interesting to, to, and some commentators have considered whether or not there was something going on within the church in Colossae because of the false teacher that had incorporated some other form of worship that was not God-centered, Christ-focused, word-based. 
keeping in mind that the false teacher was incorporating into his teaching a lot of syncretism with paganism, ritual, and, and a lot of other stuff. And so Paul, perhaps out of concern for this, is addressing what it is the content of the worship in the church ought to be like. What is the basis for it? What is the focus of it? What is it that drives the worship? How do we admonish and encourage each other? Well, we do it through this means. This is one particular means. It's not the exclusive means, but clearly our singing is something that communicates to other people truth that we believe. That's important. So it matters what we sing. If you go to a church and hear someone sing and you can't figure out whether they're singing a love song to their husband or talking about Christ, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. Paul said that should never be an issue. When you're worshiping, the content of your worship through these modes of expression, which is word-based, ought to leave no doubt that you're singing about Jesus Christ and what has been done for you through his finished work. This speaks to the extraordinary nature of corporate worship. We're not singing about our own inner experience, but rather our collective understanding of God and what he has done for us through Christ. And as we're singing, because the word of Christ is richly dwelling within us, We can encourage each other through the fact of our joyful expression of that through our hearty singing. Whether it be the Psalms or hymns, we'll find that the word hymn here means other things that could have been written about Christ that was incorporated into the church. Some believe that the opening portions of Colossians in chapter 1 are actually portions of a hymn that was sung in the church. In particular, those passages that deal with who Jesus Christ is, verses 15 through 19 or 20. Some believe, theologians believe, that that's actually a portion of a hymn that was ultimately sung in the church. That's pretty deep stuff. You go back and look at it, it's not 7-Eleven. But when you consider all that's there, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Wow. Is that going to chart number one? I don't know. It has a good beat. You can dance to it. I don't know. But we see here then that Paul is being very specific about what's taking place within the church. Within the church. And so ultimately we see that the mode of expression is the means by which we are encouraging each other, the psalms, the hymns, the spiritual songs. And it indicates that the teaching and admonishing um, is, is a means by which that takes place, although it's not exclusive. There are other means by which that can happen, but in particular, Paul is saying that one of those modes is through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which modifies then the teaching and admonishing, which is interesting. Now, it may seem awkward that one singing can at one and the same time be both to God and to one another, yet this is an idea familiar to us from the Old Testament, and this is instructive to us for our gathered worship. Our singing is not simply to warm individual hearts, but to testify to, instruct, and edify the larger body. Now, what's shocking to me is that when people, I've actually had conversations with people about this, and I've read articles about the fact, what are the five reasons that people choose a church? Music is often the very first one. Music. Do they have a good music program? Second, what's the children's program like? Three, do they have small groups? Four, what type of external fellowship do they have? Preaching is usually maybe not even in the top five if they're maybe in the 
at number five. That's ridiculous. I mean, what if, what if we just showed up here on Sunday at 10.30 and I preached? So, any event, what we're doing then is we're singing in a manner that reflects the reality of what God has done for us. And we do this with each other. I'm not here, we're not singing, and I don't tell, I don't tell the folks involved in music, boy, can we, can we just sing something that's going to warm our heart today? I need to feel, I want to feel fuzzy and, and cuddly today. Can you, can you warm me up? That's, that's not going to happen at Community Bible Church. We want to sing songs that are Christ-exalting. And as you sing about Christ, your love for Him will be kindled. Now, you may be convicted. You may be admonished. You may be singing a song and say to yourselves, I was not resting in Him this week. God forgive me. You're not going to be entertained or amused. This is not what Paul is speaking to here at all. Isn't it significant that that what Paul is communicating to us is completely contrary to what has been foisted upon the church today? Paul is speaking to the idea that there is a means and manner of worshiping in song and music that is sacred. He is speaking to the idea of the sacred. Because this is connected to the word of Christ. So this is different than what the world has. Which will also speak to the idea that not everything that is offered to us in the world, while appropriate for individual entertainment, entertainment may not be appropriate for corporate worship. I'll have more to say about that next week, Lord willing. But keeping in mind this as we look at this passage in conclusion, our singing is not to warm individual hearts, but to testify to, instruct, and edify the larger body. Though we may have sung the words to the songs that we sing many times, And though we may all be speaking the same words, this is nevertheless a God-ordained means of instruction and edification for the whole body. So what we sing matters. We may have someone say, when you sing, sing to God. But ultimately what Paul is saying is that you're singing to each other. We are to consider the person next to us, and to realize that while we are addressing our praise to God, we are speaking truth into our brother or sister's heart by what we are singing. This is why the vain repetition of the 7-Eleven type music, praise, worship stuff that we hear today is so banal and ineffective. We look for music that has content that is scriptural, There is a theology to hymns, hymnology. We want to make certain that we know who's writing it and what they're talking about and and how it's connected to Scripture. Paul even ties the singing here into the Psalms, and he's clearly referring to the Psalms of David. Which is significant. So again, he's grounding the church's corporate worship back into the Word. And the Psalms would have been very familiar to this congregation because that's what they would have been back home studying and which was richly dwelling within their hearts. What they would have been hearing at church. What they grew up on. And so, we see that Paul here is is making a significant comment Ultimately, what he's saying to me is that doctrine determines my experience in worship, not the other way around. I don't come to church to have an experience by a song. I come to church to to understand doctrine more deeply, and as a consequence of that, I experience more richly the wonder of God's grace. That's what's happening 
We've got it completely backward. People are going to church to have an experience so they can feel like when they've left that I am now going to be something. I feel good. People will say that, oh, I feel good today. But oftentimes, doctrine can convict. Paul uses the word admonish here. Admonishment isn't always fun. Ask your kids. How'd that admonishment go? Oh, that was great, Dad. Let's do it again. I'm ready for round two. Bring it. But see, we have here the idea that this, this corporate event is God-focused, word-saturated, even in terms of what we're singing. And when I'm singing, other people are hearing it, and they too are convicted, they're encouraged, they're exhorted as they hear me collectively raising my voice with you, singing praises to God. This is all doctrinally driven. It is never experience-driven. I'm not going to sing a song to make you have a better experience. If that's the motivation, it's wrong and it's antithetical to what Paul is saying. So now you got something else to think about. Now you can talk to people about, well, what do you do in church when you worship? What's your music like? I guess music would matter to me if I were to choose a church. I would want to know what they're doing. I would want to know if it coincides with Paul's instructions in Colossians 3.16. Or am I so distracted by the guy gyrating on the stage that I can't pay attention to anything? Or I'm so overwhelmed by the volume of the music and everything else going on that I can't even think. Or it's so dark I can't see the person next to me. Or the lights are flashing so much that I'm distracted. You know, we got to have a mood. Paul was very concerned about mood lighting, obviously. (laughs) Let's dim the lights. No. My friends, we we are drifting in a horrible way on this area, and we've allowed too many things. Well, people will say, well, Pastor, you really can't have an opinion about this. Well, I have an opinion about it. Uh, Surprise, surprise. Uh, But people will say, well, that's not fair because there's other types of music and et cetera. That's fine. But again, there are other types of music. The question it begs is whether or not that form of music is appropriate for sacred worship. That's an important question. Is it appropriate? You may listen to it home in your car. You may sing it on your tractor. You may play it in your office. But is it appropriate to sing about and to use, to talk about and communicate the truth of who Jesus Christ is? T. David Gordon wrote a book a while back called Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, How Pop Culture Rewrote the Hymnal. He laments this very issue in that book. It's a great book. I would encourage you to read it. T. David Gordon, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. And he talks about the idea about the issue of sacred. That within our own culture, especially today, we have lost the sense of the sacred. Nothing is sacred anymore. Church ought to be different. People on the street ought not to be super comfortable here when they come in as the unregenerate. What we do here is unique and it's special. And it's God-ordained and God-focused and Christ-saturated. That ought to be what they walk away with. Not that they felt like they just were at a Journey concert. I like Journey. I've been to their concerts. Debbie and I have gone and we've sung the songs. I'm not going to do it at church. I'm not going to do that at church. No more than I would say, for example, well, I don't know. Hand out cigars when you walk in the back door. Is it okay to smoke a cigar on the back porch in the cool of the evening after a long day? Well, sure it is. Nothing wrong with that at all. But it's not appropriate for church. You're not going to walk in. I'm going to hand you a bulletin and a cigar. (laughs) Go on in, light up. You see? It's okay to do that on the whatever, riding a horse, sitting in the barn, whatever you want to do. I don't have a problem with that at all. A glass of wine at dinner, whatever, sit down, enjoy the evening, friends, laughing. I'm not going to hand you a bottle of 
a blue nun as you walk in the back door. <laughs> it's appropriate. What is appropriate? That's the question. Well, keep these things in mind. We'll pick up here next week and continue to consider what the Lord has for us here. And there's a, this is a great passage. And I trust that you understand that the focus here is Christ. And we, we look to Christ in terms of all that we do. Isn't that amazing? It's always about Christ, isn't it? Even in our worship. Even in our worship. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this unique passage. Thank you for the instruction that we've received from Paul. Thank you for uh, the fact that uh, you've given us such a unique opportunity to gather together as the redeemed of Christ. And may we always be mindful of that. Forgive us for forgetting about what this is all about and who it's all about and why you have ordained it and what we're to do with it. Help us to be better stewards of it, Lord. Help us to cherish it more. Help us to marvel at the wonder of the called out body of Christ. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.